and she is the recipient of a 1981 Guggenheim grant, which is just to say parity in all circles. This is the power of now. And to Zaki Shange. Poetry readings are, uh, I just thought as I was walking down the aisle, but poetry readings are for me a way, in a way, like getting married. So uh, I shall read something old and something new and something borrowed and something blue. Um, I want to read tonight, unfortunate, that's no, not unfortunate. Um, tonight, simply because of the time of the year and the process of my life, I've been working on my novel. So tonight, I'm mostly reading prose poems, which is OK, because Gwendolyn is going to read poem poems, and then we'll all be evened out. Uh, this is a prose poem I wrote when I was in San Francisco that I love very much, that um, I was fortunate enough to have seen as a three-person, uh, ooh, what would you call it, three-person playlet at the Feminist Art Institute last year, when Filippo Luciano, Judy Brandt, and Lori Carlos uh, 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 were the characters in it. It's a story called Melissa and Smith, um, and I think it was first published in American Rag. She got her sister to ride with her to the liquor store. Was most 10 already, wouldn't be no more wine till Monday if they missed this. The fog lifted to let her through, red lights faded as she drew near. Her sister waited in the car, chewing gum, shaking her head. Melissa's losing her mind, and she chewed harder. In the liquor store with all these Italians talking about wounded knee, what'd they know? Damned engines ought to be glad they ain't dead. Wasn't Geronimo dead and Cochise? They looked at Melissa as if she was something they knew nothing about, and the heat of their stares ran her out. Two bottles of Manischewitz under her arm, she drove home a different way, same as her aunt learned her, to divert attention from her routine to surprise always a possible attacker by going somewhere unusual. So they drove away, crossed town to the Razzmatazz Cafe, a poet's bar, or a bar tended by poets, a poet's enclave, a poet's shadow somewhere safe to hide in the bathroom and drink this sweet, sweet wine. Carol, the sister, squirmed and made faces. Poets were boring and boorish. Was not going to be a good evening. Lots of hands under the table, shared bottles, shared lips, and promise never manifest. Carol was not excited. But Melissa pulled right in front of the razzmatazz and slammed the door. Turned quickly, her eyes insisting, Carol, get up, join the soiree. Oh, a soiree. A, par a party for an old beat poet. A reading of work salvaged from his madness. A coterie of possible strangling and tap beer forgotten lovers. Sawdust scavengers articulating remembered ridiculousness. Their fathers dying, lying clumsily to to someone else they love, maybe a recant of some time in the joint or the sanitarium, the halfway house, a railroad car, maybe a poem to the women who were impressed and quickly exhausted by the immensity of their idols' appetites for sacrifice, for Naomi, for Betty, for Diana, for Lavinia, etc., etc., and on and on through the night. Melissa was recognized by a self-appointed host who referred to her as a fine poetess an inconceivable entity, a non-actual manipulator of language, a feminine peculiarity with language in less than a poet, a real thing, a term like lady or mamzelle, a rejoinder to the Middle Ages, an insult she refused to read, and no one got the point. 
One reluctant visionary established a corner as his own. Five empty chairs surrounded him, a table covered with sheets of paper, presumably poems. Piled or twisting, he too did not read. But he wept when the celebrity of the 50s attempted to shout a poem to the mirror, not recognizing an audience besides himself. This recluse poet, a table of his own, pulled himself together, read the master poet's work from that very spot. And the two of them, the mad one and his counterpart, exchanged looks of tenderness neither were familiar with. The hermit champion left abruptly after pulling Melissa out of her seat. Melissa knew what was going on. He insisted she did not. I didn't call you, he snarled, tugging her arm up against his chest. I didn't want to see you tonight. He seemed more disappointed than angry, more frightened than fearsome. Melissa lingered in the damp of his chest. I just wanted to hear some poems. I needed some poems and some voices nearby. It's not good to drink alone. And she nodded toward her sister, who was reading the daily life of the Aztecs under the phone. The poet sighed, so happy she had not said what he knew she meant. She had not declared her love of his being, how she simply wanted to be near him. More importantly, she had not said that she wanted to know him. Like the poems she tossed casually out of her mouth day after day, the wine, the images, him listening to her murmur worlds. The old beat poet had stationed himself atop the bar in mismatched shoes. Locks that could have been dreads had he known about Bob Marley swallowed his face. Everyone was afraid for him. He might become a fool more easily now than remain the prophet of the new day he had missed by moving too fast, going the wrong way, remembering too much or forgetting something that could not be forgotten, and so wound itself around his spirit, and the more he forgot, the more twisted he became. Everyone knew there was a secret, beaded and angry. Melissa watched all this over the shoulder of her lover, a poet afraid to look at his fate in 20 years, screaming on the top of the bar. No Ben Webster here. This was not Bird's legacy to be crusted wantonly in Kuwait, chuckling about other times no one could recall. This poet holding Melissa, breathing tears and fear on her neck, was called Smith, and that was all just Smith. And he commanded the respect of the locals in some cross country who knew his work, tight and sparse, brutal in the one thrustedness of his voice. Smith was, perhaps, an answer to someone besides Melissa, someone searching in dead lecturer, aphrodisia, preface to a 20-volume golden sardines. Smith was the other one, the unassigned specter of our lives with the vocabulary of earlier days, sensibilities of our times, the mixture of the eras created no following for him, except Melissa and those souls who had lost a space for themselves in this world lost the languages of the present and muff muffled their paucity of connection with morphing, began conversations with sorrow on a toot of cocaine in a syringe. Smith was a businessman, a dealer, which hurt him more than watching the crazy beat acting up, hurt him like discovering his sister dead in the tub, drowned in a nod, his brother hanging from a water pipe in the second basement of a project, hurt him like Melissa showing up uncalled for. Melissa being someone he protected from himself as best he knew how. And she refused his goodwill, his refusal to be known as, she refused, as he refused her faith in him. She drank sweet wine down Highway 101 as he left scars licking the bronze of his arms trying to forget. Carol chewing gum, catching her history like somebody chasing a cockroach, closed the book. 
marched out of the razzmatazz when the old beatnik began a high mass for his mother in front of the hard whiskey shelf just beyond the bar. She had no time for the recently dead, near dead, or suffering. She determined that her sister, Melissa, could not join this fraternity of sadness come up in some private martyrdom. Carol stalked through the swinging doors, pulled Melissa from Smith, let's go home, this ain't shit. The niggas are crazy, all y'all going crazy, look like dead folks kissing. And she was right. <clears throat> Melissa clung to Smith imperceptibly, like someone passed away. She thought her body through his blood and caught his cries with the tip of her tongue. Melissa was not safe, and her sister took her home. Melissa drunk, Carol angry. The ride from Potrero Hill to the ocean must have been like Judas carrying on while Christ burdened himself for us all. Guilt stifled everything. Fog sat down on the curbs. The ocean spat silver on the beach. Carol took Melissa's bottle away. He ain't no good. Damn, Melissa. Melissa climbed into her bed by the sea and cried a thousand smiths, each one breaking her skin so she was bloody and scraped. She rolled in her blood trying to kiss him, and when he called, she sounded regular. Oh yes, I'll be there. Carol hated her. Carol watched Shanghai Lily making Topsy take the weight. Melissa barely made it. She couldn't see. Fog and trolley tracks, cop cars and visions of him. She could hardly make out the corners, but some kind of way she made it down the hill and she sat imagining Smith holding her, wanting her, finally explaining why he did her how he did and she smiled imbecilically because she had lost control. Her muscles, her breath, all controlled by something else, something no good, something like Smith smiling, Smith moving inside her, his beard digging through her cheeks, the blood they sucked from each other's flesh. This was not ordinary. <laughs> Smith was not ordinary. Melissa no regular, nothing. Their embrace could be a murder or a poem. Melissa found her way down the street, the hills, nothing but hills. Where she came from, only a river and heavy scents. She took each step like a gift, going to see the wizard, the body concealing heaven. Smith somewhere up there at the top of this, he grabbed her up. His hair braided a million times, braids falling from his skull, cheekbones raised to holy angles, his mouth rushing over her, saying good things like, come in, Melissa, please, please come in, I want to see you, Melissa. The blood dripping from his arms, she tried to wipe into her skin, she rubbed against him furiously, and he liked it. Pulled round, pulled away, mad and soft like, uh-huh, you don't understand, Melissa, how much I need. Melissa kissed his calves, licked his ankles. He went to the typewriter. She moved with his legs, her hands and mouth caressing like water. Her tongue followed his tears down his face, and the poem crawled out. P.S. He never called her again. Years later, he published several small volumes of her poems. Outside, folks, there. Okay, um, I want to read now uh, a section from the novel. I'm really going to finish Sassafras, right? I'm really moving there. How many people know who she is? Know who Sassafras is? Okay, Sassafras, Cypress, and Indigo are sisters in this not big book, but it's my novel, uh, my long story. Um, and I, so what I'll do is I'll read something about Sassafras, something about Cyprus, and finally Indigo, who's come to life just in 1980, 81, 
it's really good for me. It's wonderful. Um, Sassafras is a weaver, and uh, she lives with a guy named Mitch, uh, who is a itinerant saxophonist and or artist, depending upon who he's speaking to on any one day. Um, they're also mystics, I think, thoroughly, um, all of them. Um, the thing that I like particularly about this book is that uh, there are the food that they eat. See, I, I got tired of reading books where the women's lives were always uh, spent in the street and in beds. And so I wanted to write a book about women that had what we do in it. So how they clean their houses and the food they cook is in this book. This book can stay in your kitchen and you can use it. It is about women who do things that are of use to all of us, like nurturing and survival, things of that kind. Um, so there are recipes in here um, that each, I'm serious, there are recipes for the meals that they cook their lovers and or their mother. The mother sends them letters about things that she thinks they should cook and all that sort of thing. Um, because even though we're feminists, we still have to eat. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. Okay, I'll start at the top of sassafras and then I'll jump. Okay. <sighs> Nothing but tenor saxophone solos ever came out of that house. Sometimes you could hear a man and a woman arguing, but almost always some kind of music. Sassafras and Mitch lived together in that house, sort of hidden behind untended hedges and peeling shingles. Even though they were living in Los Angeles, there were always some dried leaves laying across their stoop. Sassafras thought it was the spirits bringing them good luck. Mitch thought it was because she didn't ever sweep. But there was still the music and the great Black Dane, Albert, whose real name is My Name is Albert Eiler. None of the neighbors knew the dog's full name, so Sassafras never worried about him being stolen because he only came when someone called him by his whole name. <laughs> Sassafras had named him after the screenplay she had started at the album she had made, and after her lover she had never met Albert Eiler, was found in the East River. That was one of the reasons that Mitch was attracted to her, because she had named her dog so irreverently after his mentor, Alto Saxus Eiler. Still, Sassafras was so full of love, she couldn't call anybody anything without bringing good vibes from a whole lot of spirits to everything she touched. Walter Cronkite's voice could be heard through the open window next to Sassafras's bed. She was sitting there in a long blue and red cotton skirt, crocheting another hat for Mitch. The long walls of the fallen down, almost Victorian house were totally covered with murals of African exploits. Every time the landlady came to repair the falling plaster on the ceiling, she looked so uncomfortable. Her redneck lips would get littler than a needle and her, lips would, her cheeks would get all stiff. Sassafras loved watching that old Peckawood get nervous from the total blackness all through the house. The Peckawood got $100 a month for the whole flat, which Sassafras and Mitch had worked on to be a permanent monument to the indelibility of black creative innovation. She glanced up from her 66 stitch to see if there was anything else to do to make the house more perfect for her and Mitch to stay in until the black revolution or until they moved to the black artists and crafts craftsman's commune starting just outside New Orleans and pretty near a black nationalist settlement that she also knew about. Sassafras believed it was absolutely necessary to take black arts out of the white man's hands, to take black people out of white man's hands. But here she was in Highland Park, Los Angeles, with rednecks and Chicanos because Mitch's parole officer refused to grant permission for them to live in any black area and because they could only afford $100 a month and because they didn't have the money to buy into the artist commune near New Orleans anyhow, almost $1,000 cash. So Sassafras looked around to see if there was something else she could make to make them feel more like loving each other and hitting sunrise with hope instead of the groans and crabbiness that ate through them toward the end of every poor month. 
There were the exasperating patchwork curtains she had managed to get done and macrame hangings in every doorway, each one named for one of their heroes. There was a long and knotted purple jute hanging for Malcolm, who was a king. It had bullets woven through the ends of it and dried sand covered twigs passing in and out of the center. Bullets and land of our own, Sassafras had said, standing on Mitch's shoulders to hang it up. Then there was the one for Fidel, Garvey, Archie Shep, and Coltrane in her study. Sassafras had sequestered a sequin and feather hanging shaped like a vagina for Josephine Baker, and Mitch had made her hide it because it wasn't proper for a new African woman to make sexual things of that nature. <laughs> Just as she was remembering Mitch's tirade against her featherwork, Sassafras felt the doors open and there he was, the cosmic lover and wonder of wonders to her, Mitch. Mitch had to stoop a little under the doorway. He was almost seven feet tall and long-limbed like a Watusi with Ethiopian eyes that arched like rainbows and golden earrings in both ears, etched real fine because they were from Mexico and ticks. His nose was slightly crooked like Nasser's and his presence was that of one of those Olmec gods. Mitch thought of himself as a god and he was always telling Sassafras not to succumb to her mortality, to live like she was one of God's stars. That particular day, Mitch was wearing his blue homespun shirt Sassafras had made with lace cuffs and an orange coral medallion and some copper corduroy pants that sat on his thighs like he was the hottest thing in town. But this time, Mitch was serious and brusque when he spoke to Sassafras, who was trying to push her crocheting under her skirts. Why aren't you writing, girl? Do you, go, do you think you're going to become some kind of writing sit up here and making me hats? I got so many goddamn hats, I had to give some away, and you sitting here making me another hat? Well, if I didn't know you were being so considerate because you didn't want to deal with your writing, I'd say thanks, but you keep making me stuff and hanging all this shit all around the walls every day so you don't have to write anything. <laughs> Sassafras was holding her lips so tight between her teeth she could barely stand the pain, and she was making moves to get up and get away from Mitch's harangue when he pushed her back on the bed. Now look, I just want you to be happy with yourself. You want to write and create new images for black folks, and you always sitting around here making things with your hands. There's nothing wrong with that, except you have known how to do that all your goddamn life. Mitch began to grow fierce again and held Sassafras briskly by the shoulder with one hand, bringing her chin and eyes straight to his gaze with the other. And Sassafras couldn't avoid the truth. The man she loved was not happy with her charade of homebodiness because all this weaving and crocheting and macrame she'd been doing all her life. Her mother was a weaver in Charleston. And Sassafras was supposed to be a writer. Mitch forcefully held her face close to his and continued, now Sassafras, get into yourself and find out what's holding you back. <laughs> You can create whole worlds. I don't want to come and see you like this anymore. Listen to some white man make it easy for you to stop thinking, telling you all the white folks' news so you think that don't nobody know you got to pay your dues to the spirits. Sassafras, so don't another person tell you you're a writer. You'll know it all your life, and you better take care of it. You'll end up some kind of wino or a slut trying to fuck it away with some punk-ass school teacher who can't see you a jive-ass little bitch. Miss <laughs> slowly let Sassafras come into her own control and stood all the way up so she wouldn't forget who was overwhelmingly right in any situation. He straightened his shirt and his pants and left the room to go practice horn playing. <laughs> That's enough of them. So now we'll go. <laughs> so now we'll go visit uh, her sister, Cypress, who was. Um, uh huh. Cypress is a, a little bit more feisty and much more worldly than Sassafras is. And Cypress is a dancer. Uh, Cypress uh, joins, she used to belong to something called the Cushites Returned in uh, San Francisco. And then they came across country. Uh, and when they get to New York, 
Uh, for some reason, the band sort of falls, the, the, the troupe falls, well, it's a real clear reason why it falls apart, but the, the, the group falls apart and she also has a, a feminist revelation and decides that she should be in a feminist dance company, so she leaves that uh, to go to be in this group called Azure Bosom, who has a studio called, uh, I'm serious. <laughs> she leaves Cushite's return to go join Azure Bosom, who have a studio called um, Ovary Studio. <laughs> They, they do. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, she was, the first concert she does in New York is called, um, uh-huh, the first concert they do is at Overy Studio. So, uh, okay, I'll read you the concert and then I'll tell you more about her personal life, which is very interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, there was nothing straight at Overy Studio. Everything was round, curving, textured, and dense. No sense of the possibility of masculinity existed. The ceiling was covered with moss-like pubic hair. The aisles of the theater arena moved like errant streams. Everywhere there was flow. <laughs> Azure Bosom had quite a following in New York. They were regarded as the thrust of the future for women in dance, articulating what women had never acknowledged. Our bodies are not our destiny, but all freeing energy. Azure Bosom brought many women to tears, to joy, a sense of quiet easiness they had never known. Because Azure Bosom had given so many women so much of themselves, many, many women came to the opening of vulva dreams, is what they were after. <laughs> Now that's the name of the concert, Bubble James. Now we're at the concert, right? As your bosom moved down the winding aisles in slow motion, making shh and ah sounds. They seemed to lose all skeletal form. The women were clouds billowing, unfurling smoke rings, and shh and ah embraced all souls and caressed and tumbled over lips, and there was a holy warmth, another communion, a sensual joining of strangers, the sound of women loving themselves. As they approached the stage, Azure Bosom began a series of prolonged contractions that pushed their bodies irregularly in space until the tensions in their spines were vigorous and filled with danger. The hushing sounds became screams and the haunting ah was a pelvic groan like trembling oceans on a still night. They rolled across the stage erratically like women possessed and their sounds were beings collapsed in mirrors and some one of them sighed for mama and then a chorus of all the different times and voices for that one woman issued forth like the burning bush and it went on, the cry for mama until Celine made a gesture for silence. And then there was celebration. Celebration of Mensis, of why she can be daughter, why she can mother, how girl from woman, and the widely esteemed Azure Bosom puberty rite began. The first lighting, other than candles, blazed out red. The women began to touch their thighs, make like they were smelling their fingers, seeing something wondrous come from themselves. Their hips cut into space, became familiar with sex, and suddenly Stevie wonders, here I am, baby. Signed, sealed, and delivered, blasted through Ovary Studio, accepting menstruation as the key to womanhood, what made bosoms and ass possible, why mama exists, and love among us. The women in Azure Bosom became the female body exalted. As Stevie Wonder's song faded out, the women made clicking sounds with their tongues and rubbed their thighs and crotches in a moving kick series out of the arena, leaving the audience to continue the ritual until every woman greeted her flowing blood and rounded hips with unbounded thanks. Then after this, of course, they had a party, right? 
They sit after the concert. They, well, everybody does when you have an opening night. You always have a party. So, of course, they had a party. And so there was an Azure Bosom party. And I'll read you a little bit of that because she meets a marvelous woman in this place. Okay. Any woman who liked women at all would have loved them after Azure Bosom's concert. Vulva Dreams was the sucking of a ripe plum or a chilled strawberry to any possible woman who likes fresh and natural growing things. And the party at Celine's, Eshells, and Cypress's was a delightful buffet for women. All kinds of women, not just the super chic and independent ones like Celine, who were so svelte only the dresses moving in the dark let someone know there was a body. <laughs> but others rounder than Eshell and more heavily bangled than Cypress, women in trousers, gabardine, and silk, women with mustaches and camels, more subtle types with Shermans and boots. Women with big stomachs and big tits, women smoking, looking like Smokey Robinson and women looking like Miriam McKeever, somebody being fiery like La Lupe, and some women who didn't even know that this was an Azure Bosom party and women couldn't come as women but only as women and jewelry and attitude and talent and ennui and good taste and body. Azure Bosom was one, of, was one thing. Azure Bosom's parties were quite something else, more like a slave market where everybody was selling. Cypress fit right in. Since she had been in New York, she'd been dancing much harder than in San Francisco. She didn't have such a peasant figure anymore, nor the casual attire she had craved on the coast. She was actually looking very expensive and terribly unapproachable, which was the look for this particular crowd. But Cypress didn't really know why she should put herself up for auction to be run off with, by some woman she didn't know, any more than she'd understand what cruelty had to do with a good time. And since she wasn't having one, she left to take a walk. She was waving goodbye to something Brooklyn and Caribbean in a scarlet satin skirt with golden flowers pasted to her fleeting tits as something Manhattan and subdued snarled, I don't know who it's going to be tonight, but I'm going to fix her so she won't never want nothing but what I got. <laughs> Cypress was so upset, she walked all the way to 72nd Street before she realized that somebody was walking with her. A woman in blue jeans and gold hoops all the way around her ears was mostly what Cypress saw. They didn't say anything, they just kept walking. And when they looked at each other, the tension of being strangers lessened. Cypress turned to walk east on 96, so did the woman. Finally, Cypress took a deep breath and said, okay, what's up? Well, I uh, saw you leave your shells before I could talk to you and I wanted to talk to you and you looked like you needed someone to talk to you and I thought there was no one there to talk to you so I followed you. Well, uh, what is it that you wanted to talk about? Uh, I'm not looking for anything quick and easy, okay? Well, I, no, it's nothing like that. I just wanted to get to know you. I mean, I don't want to do anything to you. I can't stand those vampire bitches either, but I was lonely, so I thought I'd try to make some new friends while my lady is in Europe. They are still walking. And now at First Avenue and 86th Street, Cypress and this woman, Adrena, go have a glass of wine. Adrena was a dancer too. She and Cypress focused most of their attention on being third world female dancers in the United States and being disgusted with the way a lot of Celine and Shell's friends conducted themselves in the world. Adrena, who was quite delicate herself, found Cypress's indignation and disillusion about being a dancer charming, absolutely charming. They had two or three half decanters of wine and two or three bars before Adrena walked Cypress back to the Bowery. Somewhere between the Mideast Side and Canal Street, Adrena found a slightly tousled flower for Cypress's hair, a perfectly shaped rock for Cypress's good luck, 
a stray pigeon feather for Cypress's ear, an empty window frame for Cypress's weaving, and a way of putting her tiny hand around the back of Cypress's neck so that she would just smile. <laughs> Cypress's journal entry number 151. <laughs> Yesterday, my bosoms kept falling out of my shirts, moving easily when I turned, the right nipple wiggles, but Adrena says, what's a little titty among friends? <laughs> okay, that's enough of her. <laughs> How much time do I have now? I, okay, I want to read it. I have a poem. I really do. I have one poem. Okay. Um, I want to read you something about indigo um, before I leave, but I want to read this too. The thing, the, what I did with these women was I tried to make them all have made different choices. The sisters, because I think most sisters do make different choices. Um, sometimes you just choose differently because your sister did it that way, so you can't do it that way. Um, but this piece is, uh, I'm going to read now, it's called It Hasn't Always Been This Way. And it's a choreo poem that I do with Sounds in Motion, which is Diane McIntyre's dance company, um, that we'll be doing hopefully again in March. And uh, it's in three parts. Uh, it, ha it has, the first part is uh, the, the movement and the language uh, are to mood indigo. And the second part is improvised in five sevens and elevens. And the third part is to uh, take the A train. So what I'll, to indicate the parts, I'll just use my fingers, okay? Uh, but they're called those things. Mood indigo, improvisation, and take the A train. It has not always been this way. Ellington was not a street. Robeson, no mere memory. Du Bois walked up my father's stairs and hummed some tune over me, sleeping in the company of men who changed the world. It wasn't always like this. Why, Ray Barretto used to be a sideman and Dizzy's hair was not always great. I remember I was there. I listened in the company of men. Politics as necessary as collards, music even in our dreams. Our house was filled with all kinds of folks. Our windows were not cement or steel. Our doors opened like our daddy's arms held us safe and loved, children growing in the company of men. Old southern men and young slick ones, Sonny Till was not a boy. The clovers, no ragtag orphans, our crooners. We belonged to a whole world. Nkrumah was no foreigner. Virgil Aikens was not the only fighter. It has not always been this way. Ellington was not a street. There is something caught in my throat. It is this place. My baby is sleeping. I check to see if she is alive. She does not know about gagging. She does not have this place in her throat. She does not know where we are. How it sears the membranes, eats the words right out of your mouth, leaves you sucking pollutants, impotence, and failure. A whole race of people can't do nothing at the roller disco. There is something caught in my throat. It is hard and ugly. I would vomit it out, but the malignancy only grows toward my gut and will not come out alive. My child is sleeping. She does not know where we are. And some man wants to 
kiss my thighs, roll his tongue all around my navel, put his hands all up my ass, and this place is in my throat? How can I tell him there is nothing up my behind that will get this place out of my throat? I went to a dangerous place with a man who was not there. Because he don't know how to dial a joke or call for information. Well, I could tell him a few things. There are dead children out here. There are desperate women out here. The sky is falling, and I am choking to death because of where I am and who we are. This is the 20th century. Do you think Archer Skin Tone Cream will solve the color complexion problem during limited nuclear engagement, or are you stocking up on porcelain? I have this thing in my throat. I can't put no more tongues in my mouth, no cigarettes, no tranquilizers. I can't eat anything. I should have kept my damn champagne and asked the Coke man for something so good it would burn this place out of my soul so I could breathe and check my daughter who was still sleeping. She thinks unicorns and magnolias are things to put in her mouth. She don't know where she is yet. She don't know all black kids gonna get is a fist in her mouth or a white man who says she's arrogant because she can look him in the eye because she don't know where she is. This thing is caught in my throat, exploding just beneath my chin. I told this man, my daughter does not know where she is, where I keep my child. There are no white men with sexual thoughts about infants. She'll know better next time. But she ain't having this place, this gun happy, watch niggas dying, fuck you to the death place in style while they got ads saying, come and see the satin Latins, but you got to dress as white gods and goddesses. She ain't here for that. I am choking to death. And some man watched me looking for him in the rain and called me later to say that he saw me in the rain looking and couldn't do nothing about it because it was an aesthetic thing. <laughs> this place is caught in my throat. I would tear it out and let you eat it, but I have a daughter who sleeps well. And until somebody comes to help me, I'll have to keep swallowing this place like the rest of you, praying I won't have to hold all my respect for human beings in my one closed fist, my one fistful of fight that we will choke on this place and make it somewhere we could live. Please don't send me no flowers. I don't want no white wine. I don't even want a roof over my head. I want this place out of my throat. I want James Brown to stop the hell singing, get the hell out the way and let a man come in. I could sleep with a man, but I'll lay with the souls of black folks. Maybe I could grow me something, some azure flower that would smell like life to me. A root of some healing spice might push up from my soils if I dream with the souls of black folks. What is invisible is not a man, but the spirits of some who were. Bigger is not a black boy yearning for an airplane, but the eyes of our children who don't know why we can't get no satisfaction. Oh, I could sleep with a man. I could even sing with a man. But I got to rise with the souls of black folks. Where is going to A-Train going to take me if I don't know where I'm supposed to go? Ellington is not a street. And my child knows her world is as rich as a people in sorrow can spare, as brash as our bodies in the black forest, but it has not always been this way. I swear, we were not always missing. Thank you very much.
the Poet Laureate of Illinois. She is famous not only for her poetry, but also for the generosity of her inspired teaching. One of the best of all narrative poets, Gwendolyn Brooks, in her work, provides us with all the pleasures and forms and stories, combined with all the freedom of constantly learning. It's a great pleasure to welcome her to the Poetry Project. Gwendolyn Brooks. It's a real pleasure to be here in this, um, I think I'll call it house of history. I've heard so many wonderful things about it. Is this operating? And it's a great pleasure to um, share this uh, little platform with uh, Ntozaki Shange. I've never uh, heard her before. And uh, I missed her choreo poem. But uh, as soon as her book came out for Colored Girls, I got it and I read it and I knew right away that here was, what shall I call it? An energetic adventuresomeness. That's one thing that could be said about her. <laughs> Excuse me. Well. She told you I was going to read some poem poems. I don't know if that's what you'll call them or not. I'm going to introduce to you first a little boy by the name of Lincoln West, one of my favorite little boys, and tell you that Lincoln West had his problems because he had come here as an African, looking African. Now, when I say he came as an African, looking African, I don't mean that he came necessarily from Ghana or Tanzania or uh, Kenya, all very beautiful countries. He might have come from that native land that our comedian Red Fox identifies as his own. He says that his native land, you know, is St. Louis. So Lincoln West might have come from St. Louis, but I like to think of him as being African. Ugliest little boy that everyone ever saw. That is what everyone said. Even to his mother, it was apparent when the Blue Apron nurse came into the northeast end of the maternity ward bearing his squeals and plump bottom, looped up in a scant receiving blanket, bending to pass the bundle carefully into the waiting mother hands that this was no cute little ugliness. <laughs> No sly baby waywardness that was going to inch away, as with baby fat, baby curl, and baby spot rash. The pendulous lip, the branching ears, the eyes so wide and wild, the vague and vibrant brown of the skin, 
and most disturbing, the great head. These components of that look bespoke the sure fiber, the deep grain. His father could not bear the sight of him. His mother high-piled her pretty dyed hair and put him among her hairpins, sweethearts, dance slippers, torn paper roses. He was not less than these. He was not more. As the little Lincoln grew uglily upward and out, he began to understand that something was wrong. His little ways of trying to please his father, the bringing of matches, the jumping aside at warning sound of oaths so large and rushing stride, the smile that gave and gave and gave, unsuccessful. Even Christmases and Easter's were spoiled. He would be sitting at the family feasting table really delighting in the displays of mashed potatoes and the rich golden fat crust of the helm or the festive fowl when he would look up and find somebody feeling indignant about him. What a pity, what a pity. No love for one so loving. The little Lincoln loved everybody. Ants, the changing caterpillar, his much missing mother, his kindergarten teacher. His kindergarten teacher, whose concern for him was composed of one part sympathy and two parts repulsion. <laughs> the others ran up with their little drawings. He ran up with his. She tried to be as pleasant with him as with others. But it was difficult, for she was all pretty, all daintiness, all tiny vanilla, with blue eyes and fluffy sun hair. One afternoon, she saw him in the hall, looking bleak against the wall. It was strange, because the bell had long since rung, and no other child was in sight. Pity flooded her. She buttoned her gloves and suggested cheerfully that she walk him home. She started out bravely, holding him by the hand, but she had not walked far before she regretted it. The little monkey. <laughs> Must everyone look? and clutching her hand like that, literally pinching it. At seven, the little Lincoln loved the brother and sister who moved next door, handsome, well-dressed, charitable often to him. They enjoyed him because he was resourceful, made up games, told, stories. But when their more acceptable friends came, they turned their handsome backs on him. He hated himself for his feeling of well-being when with them, despite 
everything. He spent much time looking at himself in mirrors. What could be done? But there was no shrinking his head. There was no binding his ears. Don't touch me, cried the little fairy-like being in the playground. Her name was Nerissa. The many children were playing tag, but when he caught her, she recoiled, jerked free, and ran. It was like all the rainbow that ever was going off forever. All, all the sparklings in the sunset west. One day, while he was yet seven, a thing happened. In the downtown movies with his mother, a white man in the seat beside him whispered loudly to a companion and pointed at the little link. There, that's the kind I've been wanting to show you. One of the best examples of the species. Not like those deluded Negroes you see so much of on the streets these days, but the real thing, black, ugly, and odd. You can see the savagery, the blunt blindness. That is the real thing. His mother, her hair had never looked so red around the dark brown velvet of her face, jumped up, shrieked, go to she did not finish. She yanked to his feet, the little Lincoln, who was sitting there staring in fascination at his assessor, at the author of his new idea. All the way home, he was happy. Of course, he had not liked the word ugly, but after all, should he not be used to that by now? What had struck him among words and meanings he could little understand was the phrase, the real thing. He didn't know quite why, but he liked that. He liked that very much when he was hurt, too much stared at, too much left alone. He thought about that, he told himself. After all, I'm the real thing. It comforted him. I'm going to read you a couple of poems that won't make too many ardent friends, especially the first one, which is titled, To Those of My Sisters Who Kept Their Naturals. And I say right away to all of my sisters out here, I love every last one of you, 
but I had to create a tribute to those other people. And remembering that I love you, don't pelt me with tomatoes and whatever else you may happen to have with you when I leave, because I did tell you I love you no matter <laughs> what you're doing to your heads. <laughs> Sisters, I love you because you love you, because you are erect, because you are also bent, in season, stern, kind, crisp, soft, in season, and you withhold, and you extend, and you step out, and you go back, and you extend again, your eyes loud, soft, with crying and with smiles are older than a million years and they are young. You reach in season, you subside in season and all below the rich, rough, right time of your hair. You have not bought blondine you have not hailed the hot comb recently. You never worshipped Marilyn Monroe. You say, Farrah's hair is hers. You have not wanted to be white, nor have you testified to adoration of that state with the advertisement of imitation. Never successful because the hot comb is laughing too. <laughs> but oh, the rough, dark, other music, the real, the right, the natural respect of self and seal. Sisters, your hair is celebration in the world. And now a testimonial so black. Thank you. In Primer for Blacks, I like to introduce this poem with something said by Haki Mad Hubuti. I certainly understand why. Some of my brothers and sisters have changed their names. It's a very clean impulse. But I do wish when they change them, they would select names that are very easy to remember, spell, <laughs> and say. So most of us call Hockey, who was formerly known as Donnell Lee, just Hockey. Hockey said, we have bloods who are so heavy that they are now in their post-black periods. <laughs> will tell you they've been through that black thing, that they were black last year, or year before that. Can you imagine a white saying he's been through that white thing, <laughs> that he's now in his post-white period? You notice it's thing for blacks and thing for whites. Blackness is a title, is a preoccupation, is a commitment blacks are to comprehend 
and in which you are to perceive your glory. The conscious shout of all that is white is it's great to be white. The conscious shout of the slackened black is it's great to be white. Thus all that is white has white strength and yours. The word black has geographic power, pulls everybody in. Blacks here, blacks there, blacks wherever you may be. And remember, you blacks, what they told you. Remember your education. One drop, one drop maketh a brand new black. Oh, mighty drop. And because they have given us kindly so many more of our people, blackness stretches over the land. Blackness, the black of it, the rust red of it, the milk and cream of it, the tan and yellow tan of it, the deep brown, middle brown, high brown of it, the olive and ochre of it. Blackness marches on. The huge, the pungent object of our prime outride is to comprehend, to salute, and to love the fact that we are black, which is our ultimate reality, which is the lone ground from which our meaningful metamorphosis, from which our prosperous staccato group or individual can rise. Self-shriveled blacks begin with gaunt and marvelous concession. You are our costume and our fundamental bone. All of you, you colored ones, you Negro ones, those of you who proudly cry, I'm a half Indian. <laughs> those of you who proudly screech, I've got the blood of George Washington in my veins. All of you, you proper black, you half blacks, you wish I weren't blacks, niggeros and niggerines, <laughs> you. Well, that's for my brothers and sisters and those of you who are not of that particular persuasion, we're certainly welcome to eavesdrop and make what you could. <laughs> I'm going to read you a love poem, and I'm sure that this could be properly called, as Ntozaki promised you, a poem poem. At least it's a ballad, and it appeared in my very first book, A Street in Bronzeville. And it's not among those poems that have been over-anthologized or put into too many school textbooks. 
called Ballad of Pearl May Lee. And I identify it as a love poem. It's a story of love and lynching. There's a lot I could say about it, but after hearing Antozaki, I don't, I don't need to ask you to bear with me because there are a few of the milder of the naughty words in here. I don't need to say that at all. <laughs> then off they took you, off to the jail, a hundred hooting after, and you should have heard me at my house. I cut my lungs with my laughter, 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 cut my lungs with my laughter. They dragged you into a dusty cell, and a rat was in the corner. And what was I doing, laughing still, though never was a poor gal, Larner, Larner, Larner. Never was a poor gal, Larner. Sheriff, he peeped in through the bars, and the red old thing he told you, you son of a bitch, you're going to hell cause you wanted white arms to enfold you. Enfold you, enfold you. Cause you wanted white arms to enfold you. But you paid for your white arms, Sammy boy, and you didn't pay with money. You paid with your hide and my heart, Sammy boy for your taste of pink and white honey. Honey, honey, your taste of pink and white honey. Oh, dig me out of my don't despair. Pull me out of my poor me. Get me a garment of red to wear. You had it coming, surely, surely, surely. You had it. Come in, surely. At school, your girls were the bright little girls. You couldn't abide dark meat. Yellow was for to look at, black for the famished to eat. Yellow was for to look at, black for the famished to eat. You grew up with bright skins on the brain and me in your black folks' bed. Often and often you cut me cold. Often I wished you dead. Often and often you cut me cold, and often I wished you dead. White girl passed you by one day, and the vixen she gave you the wink, and your stomach got sick and your legs liquefied, and you thought, Till you couldn't think. You thought, you thought, you thought till you couldn't think. I fancy you out on the fringe of town, the moon and owls I minding, the sweet and thick of the cricket bell dark, the fire within you winding, winding winding, the fire within you winding. Say, she was white like milk though, wasn't she? And her breasts were cups of cream. In the back of her Buick, 
you drank your fill. Then she roused you out of your dream. In the back of her Buick, you drank your fill. Then she roused you out of your dream. You raped me, nigger, she softly said. The shame was threading through. You raped me, nigger, and what the hell do you think I'm going to do? What the hell, what the hell do you think I'm going to do? I'll tell every white man in this town. I'll tell them all of my sorrow. You got my body tonight, nigger boy. I'll get your body tomorrow. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I'll get your body tomorrow. And my glory, but Sammy, she did, she did. And they stole you out of the jail. They wrapped you around a cottonwood tree, and they laughed when they heard you wail. Laugh, laugh. They laughed when they heard you wail. And I was laughing down at my house, laughing fit to kill. You got what you wanted for dinner, but brother, you paid the bill. Brother, 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 you paid the bill. Paid for your dinner, Sammy boy, and you didn't pay with money. You paid with your hide and my heart, Sammy boy, for your taste of pink and white honey. Honey, honey your taste of pink and white honey. Oh, dig me out of my don't despair. Oh, pull me out of my poor me. Oh, get me a garment of red to wear. You had it coming, surely. Surely, surely. You had it coming, had it coming. You heard it coming, surely. Well, as I promised you, that's love. I'm going to read you just two more poems. One is called Riot. And a riot is certainly a temptation to any poet's pen. I got my particular inspiration when Martin Luther King was assassinated back in 1968. And riots broke out all over the country. And one broke out in Chicago. And I saw a half-page photograph of young rioters coming down our Madison Street looking assumptive, enunciatory, and ready. And it occurred to me to wonder how a young white liberal or an old white liberal would respond to such an announcement, such a confrontation. And I named my liberal John Cabot. Of course, I know the word liberal is no longer popular, but I named my liberal 
John Cabot. Thinking of Boston, where the Lowells speak only to the Cabots, and the Cabots speak only to God. I've always loved that. <laughs> and at the top, I wrote something that Martin Luther King has frequently said, a riot is the language of the unheard. Well, this is New York, of course, and maybe you're harder and more sophisticated than they are in some places that I visit. In some places that I visit, the word riot itself is very objectionable, and I always uh, calm them down before I read this poem and say, don't be over-startled or something of that sort. So far, I haven't heard anybody talking about riots so far, except television panels that I see. Nice, neat, middle-aged white gentlemen are talking about the riots that are surely a-coming. <laughs> and I've heard at least one say he has his plans all made, he has bought property in the desert, and has <laughs> equipped his property properly. John Cabot, out of Wilma, once a Wycliffe, all white blue rose below his golden hair, wrapped richly in ripe linen and ripe wool, almost forgot his jaguar and light bluff, almost forgot Grand Tully, which is the best thing that ever happened to Scotch, almost forgot the sculpture at the Richard Gray and Distelheim, the kidney pie at Maxime's, the grenadine de boeuf at Maisot-Henri. Because the Negroes were coming down the street. Because the poor were sweaty and unpretty. Not like two dainty Negroes in Winnetka. And they were coming toward him in rough ranks in seas, in windsweep. They were black and loud and not detainable and not discreet. Gross, gross, ketue grossier. John Cabot itched instantly beneath the nourished white that told his story of glory to the world. Don't let it touch me, the blackness. Lord, he whispered, any handy angel in the sky. But in a thrilling announcement on it drove and breathed on him and touched him. In that breath, the fume of pig foot, chitterling, and cheap chili, malign mocked John, and in terrific touch, old averted doubt jerked forward decently cried, Cabot, John, you are a desperate man, and the desperate die expensively today. John Cabot 
went down in the smoke and fire and broken glass and blood, and he cried, Lord, forgive these niggas that know not what they do. My last poem is... Last poem I'm going to read you. Been a very patient audience. Is an uncontroversial love song. And I uh, may as well end on a note of love that's uncontroversial. <laughs> it's called When You Have Forgotten Sunday, the Love Story. And it's a tribute to the adolescence of my marriage which has rocked on rhythmically and non-rhythmically for 42 years. Some of your parents aren't that old. <laughs> and when you have forgotten the bright bedclothes on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and most especially when you have forgotten Sunday, when you have forgotten Sunday halves in bed, or me sitting on the front room radiator in the limping afternoon, looking off down the long street to nowhere, hugged by my plain old wrapper of no expectation and nothing I have to do, and I'm happy why and if Monday never had to come. When you have forgotten that, I say, and how you swore if somebody beeped the bell, and how my heart played hopscotch if the telephone rang, and how we finally went in to Sunday dinner, that is to say, went across the front room floor to the ink-spotted table in the southwest corner to Sunday dinner, which was always chicken and noodles or chicken and rice and salad and rye bread and tea and chocolate chip cookies. I say when you have forgotten that, when you have forgotten my little presentiment that the war would be over before they got to you and how we finally undressed and whipped out the light and flowed into bed and lay loose limbed for a moment in the weekend bright bedclothes then gent lay folded into each other when you have I say forgotten all that then you may tell that I may believe you have forgotten me well well I'll see you tomorrow night some of you
thank everyone for coming. And come back next week for P Pedro Pietri and Cookie Mueller. You can help by putting your chairs up against the wall. <laughs>